As you are seated, you probably know if you're with us regularly that one of the, the most important values we have here as a church family is what we see on our website is leadership development. We want to be a community that is raising up the next generation of men and women that are serving the body of Christ. And one of the ways that we seek to accomplish that is through the relationship that we have with Beeson Divinity School, the Divinity School over at Sanford University, most of you are aware of. And we have students that are studying there that worship with us regularly, many of whom are considering or planning on serving in the Anglican Church in the future. Some of them serve as interns. And this morning, we're very thankful to have a former intern and a recent graduate as of several weeks ago preaching for us, uh, Mr. Damian Zink. Again, um, many of you know Damian and you know his wife, Bailey, who serves on this team. They were married in this church over the last year. Again, he just graduated, and we're very thankful for the part that you all play in this church family. So, Damien, without further ado, would you please come forward and bring God's word for us this morning? I'd like to begin with a prayer, if you would all pray with me. Dear Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable and pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. I'd like to begin by wishing you all a good morning, a Merry Christmas, and a Happy New Year. I'd also like to thank Brian for giving me the opportunity to preach this morning blessing it is to serve alongside so many others of you who put in so much time, effort, and care. And while today is New Year's Day, it is also still Christmas in our Anglican tradition. We anticipate it for weeks. One day is not enough to celebrate it. And on this second Sunday of Christmas, we celebrate a particular series of events in the life of Jesus his circumcision, the giving of the holy name, and culminating with his presentation in the temple, which occurs in Luke chapter 2. If you are with us last year, we looked at that with Simeon and the song that he sang in recognition of what God had done. Simeon was a faithful follower of God, well advanced in years, but who had been promised by God that he would not leave this earth until he had seen the Lord's Messiah. And so led by the Spirit, he goes to the temple one day and there sees Mary and Joseph and the baby Jesus. Taking uh, Taking him up in his arms, he proclaims in verse 29 of Luke chapter two, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you are preparing before the face of people to be a light to lighten the Gentiles and to be the glory of your people, Israel. It's a beautiful moment that this faithful man can hold the very image of God's faithfulness in his hands. In him, he sees salvation come into the world. But is this all that we celebrate? Is it simply one man's recognition of what the Lord had been doing, or is there more going on? What about the whole rest of the Old Testament that precedes this and how it prepares us to sing along with Simeon 
There are those who would want to make the claim that the New Testament invalidates the Old Testament, that there is such a radical shift in the coming of Jesus that it makes the Old Testament and the New Testament incompatible. The Old Testament is done away with or ignored. But as we are going to look at today, that is absolutely not the case. God does not change from Malachi to Matthew. Rather, in the coming of Jesus, he makes it even clear that he is just the same as he has always been. While the experience of Simeon alone is worthy of giving God great praise, if we zoom out from the temple that day and look back over scripture, we can see all the ways that God had been preparing for just this moment, hinting at it, promising it, and despite all this time, he never wavered in his faithfulness. So while we will be returning back to Luke chapter 2, So you can keep your thumb in it or save it or however it is you keep track of things. We're going to be going further back to see one other areas that God demonstrated the same faithfulness, almost as a preamble to what Simeon recognized that day in the temple. So if you would turn with me to Exodus chapter 34, you'll find it on page 69 of the Bibles in your seats. A bit of background about this passage. The children of Israel have been freed from Egypt by the undeniable power of God, who has made an example of Pharaoh and his men. He continues on guiding the people through Moses on their way to the land that the Lord had promised to give them. But rather than simply make a beeline for Palestine, he tells Moses to go over to Mount Sinai saying that before they are to go any further, there is going to be a covenant made, a lasting promise, almost like a marriage vow between God and the Israelites, one that will define their relationship for years to come. But Moses goes up on Mount Sinai in order to hear from the Lord what the covenant is going to entail. But while he's gone, the people grow restless. They begin turning to Aaron and saying, hey, would you just make for us a new God? We don't know what's happened to Moses. We haven't heard from God in a while. Make us one to go before us, much like the Lord had as a pillar of cloud and fire. Well, they didn't get a pillar. Instead, Aaron managed to make a golden calf. But that was enough. The people bought right into it, worshiping and dancing before it. They were ascribing to this how the acts that God had done, the same God whose presence was resting on a mountaintop just outside the camp. God was making a covenant with Israel, but at the same time, they were making a mockery of his faithfulness. And as the dust settles on chapter 32, there are 3,000 dead Israelites. Water with fragments of a golden calf strewn throughout it and two tablets of stone written on by the hand of God, lying broken on the ground. And as we see this, the question can understandably come to mind, how is this great God going to deal with these fickle, stiff-necked people? Chapter 34 stands in parallel to this account. 
Beginning in verse 1, the Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready by the morning, and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai, and present yourself there to me on top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you, and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him and took in his hand two tablets of stone. Can you imagine what might be going through Moses' mind on his way up Mount Sinai? In chapter 33, Israel has been told they're going to be going and leaving soon to go into the land. And the question arises, Lord, are you going with us? Lord, how will I know that you're with us? And then in a desperate cry to know the Lord more fully, Moses says, let me see your glory. To which the Lord says that if you were to see my face, you would die. But you will see my goodness. As Moses walks up the mountain, step after step, the camp continues to shrink behind him, and not even the bleat of a lamb can be heard. It settles in how alone Moses really is. Not only that, but turning back, he sees how alone Israel really is. Out in the wilderness, gone from anything resembling Egypt, which is all they had ever known, and the sense of desperation and pride that rested over the camp. A people desperate for any kind of guidance or hope that could orient them, anything that would give them a name, pride, or power in this place where they seem so insignificant. The kind of desperation and pride that can give rise to so much sin, betrayal, and brokenness. Have you ever felt so alone, so desperate, and yet still so proud that you would grab onto anything, anything at all that seems to provide a sense of security, a home with bad company, a paycheck that required dishonest or underhanded work, a habit that took away pain but also did not leave peace. See, a golden calf doesn't sound so ridiculous when it promises exactly what you think you need. And here's Moses at the top of Mount Sinai, a second set of tablets in his arms, receiving again the covenant to give to the people. Could the goodness of God that he's about to experience make up for the foolishness of these people? If any of us have been in this kind of a lonely, isolated place, we were to think of entering God's presence, we might start making comparisons. We know that God is powerful, but we feel weak. We know that he is holy, but we feel sinful. We know that he's merciful and loving, but deep down we may wonder at what cost and for how As we feel alone on top of the mountain, all of these comparisons can be voiced in one question. Who are you, God? 
And maybe following that, echoing the psalmist, who is man that you are mindful of him. But God doesn't leave Moses or us waiting. Reading in verse five, the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. This is their God. This is our God. Merciful, gracious, long-suffering and faithful to the covenants that he makes. He stands ready to forgive, and at the same time, he perfectly upholds justice. There is not going to be an altered covenant this second time because there is no altered God. Even though his chosen people spurned his glorious blessings for a gilded bovine, he would not abandon his affections for them nor would he lower the standards to which he had called them. God's people are not simply to be their own, however, to belong to themselves or define themselves. Rather, they belong to God. He stands ready to forgive sins and multiplies his blessing so that it resonates from generation to generation, while also keeping accounts of wickedness and sin present in its consequences even as they continue to repeat their sins. This is a God who desires to be known and approached, even by unfaithful people. The goodness of God can overcome the selfishness of his people. The covenant of God is everlasting and unchanging as he is because he is the one who sustains it. But what good is a blessing if you're not in earshot? Or what good is forgiveness if you can't take hold of it? If I were to only ever whisper, I love you to my wife when she's boom and she could hardly hear me, then am I really delivering the fullness of that affection? Moses receives this revelation of God and it says in verse eight, he quickly bowed his head to the earth and worshiped. And he said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. Moses responds to the revelation of God's majesty with worship and praise, but also a petition. Please go. Be with us, forgive us, and claim us. This covenant was not meant to simply be a terms of service contract that Israel would skip to the bottom of, click I accept, and then enjoy the privileges of being God's people. It also isn't a safety manual to properly operate and maximize the efficiency of being the people of God. It is the means by which 
They were to become the kind of people who demonstrate God's presence in the world. They weren't just the people in the promised land. They were the people of the promise to the world. Does this mean that they had to be perfect first, sort it all out in Sinai before you get to the promised land? No. Moses is not naive. He speaks openly of their sins and transgressions, as well as their propensity to continue doing the same thing, the symptoms of a stiff neck. But he still asks that they not only be forgiven, but claimed for inheritance. Not that they would possess the land God would give them, but that they would be given to the God of the land. Holy vessels set aside for holy purposes. God was not to belong to them. They were to belong to God. A God who would always be faithful to his promises, who would give them a name and a place. But is this the only incident of Israel ever turning away from God? No. Their desire for a God like the golden calf isn't just a one-time thing. It's simply a foreshadowing of things to come, an attempt to glorify the mundane and use it to enter God's presence on their own terms. The wandering in the wilderness for failing to trust that God was with them, the struggles of the judges to effect lasting change as the people continue to do what's right in their own eyes, the desire to be just like the other nations around them, the high places left standing to compete with temple worship, the prophets who lay dead at the hands of those that they were sent to. The people of Israel demonstrate over and over their deep-seated aversion to belonging to God. But despite all of this, God is still exactly who he said he was on Mount Sinai. He's gracious and just, willing to be found. He hasn't given up on his people, and he will never fail his promises. In Jeremiah 31, verse 31, the Lord speaks of the unfaithfulness of Exodus 32 and of his ensuing promises, saying, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. The Lord's desire is to be with people and to encourage them in their desire of him. But what to do with these people who've demonstrated this over and over again, their unfaithfulness? The Lord offers this to those who would be faithful. Do you fling all of your affections on earthly promises and pleasures that hope to give you the world? Are you plagued by anxieties and worries that paralyze you? Do you have a religious affair with a golden calf? Or are you simply 
like me, just a little stiff-necked. For all of these afflictions, there is one remedy, a heart transplant. If we wish to follow the Lord and to be mindful not just of his statues, but what they reveal of his goodness and mercy and what they make of us that we cannot make of ourselves, then we are going to need to receive his covenant with a new heart, a heart that desires to be with the Lord more than anything. So in an effort of cosmic cardiac surgery, the Lord stepped into the world. In the words of John 1, 14, he wrapped himself, his glory that could not be seen, in flesh so that we could behold him. The glory of God that Moses could not see without dying is made as clear as day in Jesus. The light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of his people, Israel. Forgoing a mountaintop for a stable, neglecting a national audience in a king's court for shepherds in the field and wise men from afar. Why? As an answer to the prayer of the faithful, which Moses echoed on that mountaintop. Why? To be with us. To forgive us and to claim us. This is what we truly celebrate in Christmas. This is Emmanuel, the gracious, merciful, just, and faithful God is with us. This is what Simeon experiences that day in the temple. As he holds Jesus in his arm, He sees God like Moses did on the mountaintop, but without two tablets of stone in his hand, but a living, breathing child who's come to write that law on his heart. And so he worships. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation. And those of us who have experienced the heart-transforming effects of Jesus being can join in right with him. We've been singing about his presence with us for weeks at this point. Joy to the world, O holy night. What child is this? Simeon picked up singing when he saw God's response to Moses all those years ago as he held it in his arms. And we pick up singing when we see God bringing his presence into our midst by his spirit and the indwelling power that that gives us. Maybe you know these songs, the story that they represent, but you don't really know what difference it makes. Maybe they've all been repeated so much it just sounds like white noise that occurs in the holidays please know that the Lord has never stopped being exactly who he said he was. He said that most clearly in the sending of his son and how he lived, how he died, and how he was raised again. He demonstrated that faithfulness for us. But maybe you're here today and this new year looks a little daunting. 
you see various fears rising up, presentations, projects, doctor's appointments, or anniversaries of painful events. As you anticipate these challenges, the world offers you its own promises, its golden calves. They do sound tempting. And you may wonder how it is that God's presence can be found in these trials. This is the message of Christmas. God is present. God is with us. And he is as with us now as he ever was. And he is the same as he ever was. His unchanging love resounds from Moses, Simeon, to us. And by the new hearts he gives us through his spirit, we can know that the Lord will always be with us. So with these assurances of God and his unchanging faithfulness, I wish you all a Merry Christmas. And as we celebrate his presence with us, a blessed new year with our ever-faithful God.